Well, good morning. It's good to see. It's good to see all of you. Uh, I dare say it is especially good to see BJ and Sarah Louise with us this morning. It's just an unbelievable answer to prayer. We thank God for His kindness and His faithfulness in that. Uh, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter seven and find verse ten. I feel I have to warn you as we're starting. We are going to be taking something of a large piece uh, of, of this chapter this morning all at once. That has given me a little bit of heartburn this week in deciding to do that. I, I'll be honest with you. But I think, it's, I think we're going to be able to do it, and I think it's good that we do it, because as we'll see, uh, in hearing all of this together, we really get a sense of a particular thing that Jesus is bringing to our attention, um, that, that he is, is, uh, is calling out to those that he is that he is confronting there. Um, the warning also extends because amid those verses, there are some places that are hard to understand and can be confusing and misleading. And so we'll need to look at those carefully. And we'll do that. And I trust that it will be helpful to God's people as we do. Uh, verses 10 to 29. Uh, as we come into this, Jesus is going to be now down in Jerusalem teaching in the temple in the midst of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. We saw two weeks ago when we were here uh, that that's the season. So we're around September in our calendar year. Uh, we're not going to be told the content of his teaching. It doesn't tell us what he is teaching here. What we will be shown are the reactions to his teaching. And Jesus is going to respond to them then in such a way, as we'll see, that really gets at something very specific. Uh, what he challenges here is the way that they are going about the task of thinking itself. Uh, the way that they are making their judgments as they think, as they hear, as they make decisions. And as we hear him speaking to that this morning, he is very much speaking to us in our own time as well. The same need is there for God's people to be capable of deep thinking in the ways that we'll see. And so the question for us to be thinking of as we're working through this is, how does the Lord speak to and encourage us and our way of thinking this morning? Let me read verses 10 to 29. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John continues in this way. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? <clears throat> so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. 
Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. For I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I hope that it will be clear by the time we're finished with our text this morning that we're being blessed here by the gospel writer, by the Holy Spirit giving this to us. We're being blessed with three lessons about deep thinking. That's what's going to tie all of this together. But we're being blessed in that way by means of counterexamples. What we find here are counterexamples, um, examples of profoundly shallow thinking and ways of thinking. And I think as we work through this and see them, you're going to find these are not three different lessons or three different points. They're three facets of that same single uh, point of attention that we are to take from this. Now, before we begin to work through it and to see that, I would want to point out one detail to you about the layout in these interactions. I think it's helpful. You can tell as we read through it that there are two distinct groups of people among this crowd that's interacting with Jesus. And sometimes he addresses one of those elements of the crowd, sometimes another, sometimes all of them together. One of those elements are Jews who are actually from Jerusalem, or maybe even the immediate area, they're called Jerusalemites in verse 25. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. There's a group specifically from Jerusalem. Uh, and it's important that you know that that element is here because there's some unique things about them. Since they've been in Jerusalem, since uh, Jesus left and went up into Galilee, they have been hearing a lot of warnings about Jesus for a while now. Very specific teaching and warning about Jesus from the Jerusalem leaders. And so there's some things that are true about them. They have a particularly low opinion of Jesus as he comes into the temple and begins to teach. They're going to be shocked and impressed that he is learned, that he is gifted. I think that tells us something about the type of warnings they've been receiving from the Pharisees. You can't listen to this man. You can't trust him. He's never even been educated. Uh, there are others, though, besides those Jerusalem Jews and probably the majority, uh, who are not from here. They are Jews that have come here from all around to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles. And while it's clear that they do know about Jesus, you really couldn't be alive in that time 
and be a Jew and not know about Jesus. Um, they are, they are those who, they're of those who are going to display some mixed opinions in verse 12. Uh, some saying he's a good man and others saying no, he's leading astray. Um, they know enough to whisper when they are talking about him. Verse 13, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And that word there that describes their muttering in verse 12, there was much muttering about him. That word also means whispering. And it seems like that's what's happening here. So they know enough to, to be careful. But they do not know the extent of the political situation and the temperature of things going on in Jerusalem. So as opposed to verse 25, where some of the Jerusalemites will say, isn't this the man that they're seeking to kill? As opposed to that, you'll have verse 20, where this group will respond when Jesus says, why are you seeking to kill me? They'll answer, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They don't understand what he's pointing at. It's helpful, I think, to have that mental picture in mind as we're walking through this. Uh, Jesus knows all of that that's going on. And some of what he says hits at one, some hitting at the other. He knows exactly who he is talking to. It made me think of the old Zorro movie where at times he's sword fighting two different guys with two hands. Jesus knows exactly who he is speaking to here and gets his point across perfectly. We're going to walk through these three separate statements that are made uh, and as I said at the beginning, we'll have to do some things to understand a couple of them carefully. But here's what they're going to display to us. One picture of a deficient way to approach the knowledge of Jesus Christ when it's given to us. The first of those lessons that we receive can be seen in, verse, seen in verses 14 to 18. And we could speak of it this way. We could say from those verses, we hear that deep thinking is willing to do the work of a Berean. That's one quality of deep thinking. It's willing to do the work of a Berean. If you're asking, what's a Berean? Well, just wait. We'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but look at verse 15. Jesus begins to teach in verse 14. And in verse 15, the Jews marvel at what they see and hear. They marvel at his learning. He has never studied it says. That is to say, he's never gone through the school of the rabbis. He is not rabbi certified to be standing here teaching in the Jerusalem temple. He's not had the training. And yet, look at what he is able to do. Look at his handling of God's word. Look at his capacity to teach and to persuade and to speak with eloquence. They're, they're amazed at what they see. And Jesus corrects them. He corrects them by redirecting their attention. They are wrong to be putting such weight in their hearts to a mere display of eloquence and training. In other words, the problem he's going to raise here that we'll see is a, the problem of the standard by which someone's teachings are judged. How are we to judge teaching as it comes? And he gives three sentences in his reply to them here. The first is the claim he makes in verse 16. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You see the way that he redirects their attention. And it's interesting because this is a picking right back up of probably the main point he made the last time he was there, the last time he was in Jerusalem. If you were with us in John chapter 5, we, we saw him in this same place, and we saw how many times he emphasized this same thing. Things like John 5.19, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Do you remember how many times he beat that drum? I am claiming to be from my father, representing him, perfectly representing him, delivering to you something he has given to me. Don't be impressed with my eloquence. Ask yourself the question, is this an emissary of God or is it not? Is he faithful in what he's claiming to do? This initial point is quite simple. What should really matter to you is whether I am doing my own thing or whether I'm representing my heavenly father. How do we discern that? Well, the way to do that, he describes in verse 17. And this is the first of those places that we need to understand correctly or else it sounds very confusing. It's easy to read verse 17 and, and say, okay, I don't understand what, what the point is that he's making here. He's setting up an if-then situation. Can you see it? If anyone's will is to do God's will, other versions simply say, if anyone wants to do God's will, and that's a much easier way to say that, I think, if anyone truly wants to do God's will, to be doing God's will, then what? He says, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now, that can be confusing. That makes it sound as if you could hear that to say uh, that Jesus is saying, if anyone really wants to know God's will and to do God's will, if he really wants that, well, then he's going to know my if my teaching is from God or not. All he really has to do is to want to do God's will, and that's it. He is going to uh, he's going to know whether my teaching is from God. It's all just about the desire, the level of passion in them. That's how their discernment will come. Is that right? Is that the way that it works? That's not the way that it works. That's not what Jesus is saying here at all. What he, what he literally says is this. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then, and he uses an expression, he says, then he will know concerning the teaching, whether it is from God or not. This is so important. That's a figure of speech. He will know concerning the teaching, whether it is from God or not. Many have pointed out, and I'll quote from Herman Ritterboss, he points out that that expression, to know concerning a thing, means to form a judgment concerning that thing. So you see what? Jesus is saying, he's saying anyone who truly wants to do God's will is going to set about as their priority to do the work that it takes to form a judgment about that teaching, whether it is from God or not. Whether it's from God or whether they're just trying to look good. In other words, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will form a judgment concerning my teaching, whether it is or is not from God. Now let's add verse 18 just quickly to that and then we'll see what we have here. He says in verse 18 that the one who doesn't do that, the one who speaks on his own authority, who's not one sent from God, not wanting to do his will, he's simply going to be seeking his own glory. But by contrast, the one who has come seeking to do, to, to do God's will, seeking the glory of God, he says, is going to be true. Meaning he is going to be trustworthy. If he has come seeking to do God's will, he is the one who is going to be recognized as a true emissary of God. And I think there's a very simple way to take 17 and 18, put them together, 
and describe what Jesus is calling them to, how he's correcting their way of forming their judgments. He's calling them to be Bereans. We get that word in that designation, Bereans, from Acts chapter 17. Um, What's happening there is Paul and Silas are traveling around bringing the gospel news. They've just come from Thessalonica, and it didn't go well. And they get to the city of Berea. And in Acts 17.11, here's what we read. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, comma, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's what they're praised for. This is what they do. They don't look at Paul and Silas and say, well, I'm very passionate to do God's will, so I can immediately tell that what you're saying is from God. They don't look at them and say, I can hear your passion, Paul, so you must be one I should trust because you're a passionate guy. They don't do those things. They hear from Paul and Silas and they say, thank you very much, just a moment. And they pull out their Old Testaments and they begin examining the scriptures to see if these things be true. That's what they do. That's what they're praised for. Jesus is calling them here to be Bereans. He's telling them to test the teachings that they receive against God's words that he has revealed to them. I'm not doing my own thing in some kind of a way separated from the work of God, he says. And anyone really trustworthy isn't going to be trying to impress with innovation. He's going to be shedding light on what God has already revealed. And he will be confirmed by what what God has already revealed. So this first lesson that we find from our Lord here is this. It is shallow thinking that is impressed or persuaded on the basis of form and eloquence without asking the real question. The real question is, the question that determines whether one is to be viewed as trustworthy or not, is how does what I am hearing comport with what God has revealed? That's what matters. And you can hear in that Jesus' repeated statements of how he has come to fulfill the law. He has come to fulfill the word of God. So deep thinking, the first thing we see here about it is that it is willing to do the work of a Berean. The second thing we'll see, we see in verses 19 to 24, but as I said, this really isn't a second thing, it's another piece of that same thing. And we'll put it this way, deep thinking looks below the surface in search of intent. Given that we've already seen Jesus picking back up on themes that he discussed last time he was in Jerusalem, it's not so surprising what he goes to next. We see Jesus answered in verse 21, but let's look at verses 19 to 24 here together. And this portion does us a big favor as we're walking through this chapter. Because it reminds us of the waves that Jesus created the last time that he was there. Let's not forget, in chapter 5, the last time he was here in Jerusalem, it was a Sabbath controversy that got everything shaken up. That's why they had begun persecuting him first. We read that in John 5, 16. And Jesus brings that event back up here. Not just to continue the Sabbath debate, although he is going to speak to the Sabbath again. But in fact, because, his point's going to be, the very way you responded to me in that miracle of healing the paralytic, the very way that that has gone, further exposes the shallowness of your thinking. 
Let's read verses 19 to 21 first here. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Now stop there for just a moment. What work is he talking about? I did one work and you all marvel at it. He just got back into town after being gone for some time. What's the work he's speaking of? He's referring them back to what he did when he healed the paralytic, which was done on the Sabbath. The fact that he's pointing back to that is made very clear in verse 23. He finishes that by saying, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? So he's, he's bringing back up the last event that took place with them. And in bringing it up, notice he's displaying a knowledge of something. He knows that since he left, the Jewish leaders have been warning about him, teaching people why they should reject him. He knows that that has been going on. He knows that th that event is a part of the undercurrent of how they are viewing him right then, how they're thinking about him. And it's directly relevant to the exhortation he brings here about shallow thinking. It's as if he says, speaking of shallow thinking, let's talk about how you and your leaders have responded to the miracle that I worked on the Sabbath. He introduces the subject with a question and a charge, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Now the question is, of course, universally accepted by them. Yes, Moses gave us the law. But what about that charge? How would they have responded to his words? None of you keeps the law. It depends on what he's really saying. They, they knew that they would break God's law from time to time. That's why there are sacrifices. There are means of receiving forgiveness from, uh, for breaking God's law. In other words, it's not necessarily a statement he makes that would elicit a loud gasp from the crowd of offense, yet none of you keeps the law. But as he goes on, it's, it becomes very clear. Jesus is saying more than just that to them. He is claiming that they are standing in opposition to the law. He introduces the case at the end of the verse. We could really, I think, read verse 19 like this. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. And let me show you what I'm getting at. Why do you seek to kill me? He poses right to the leaders among them, those who are active in this. In other words, that's not a standalone question. It's the starting point for the point he is proceeding to make. And it's broken in. The crowd breaks in in verse 20 with a strong reaction. This sarcastic, uh, you must be crazy kind of comment. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And as we said before, we're hearing from those who are not from here, they're not aware that this is in fact going on. Some of those in Jerusalem are aware and the leaders are aware. I wonder if this was interesting for them to realize that Jesus is aware that they're plotting to kill him. He continues the point in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Now, he already mentioned, or the text mentioned, they're marveling up in verse 15. This is the second time we've got that same word here in this passage, marveling. And you need to understand that that word is not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily an impressed thing. If you look it up, what he wrote, the, the word literally means 
um, extraordinarily impressed or disturbed by something. It's about an intense emotional response, but it could be horror, or it could be, I'm super impressed right now. It could be either one, depending on the context. We saw a positive use of that in verse 15. They're impressed by his learning and his knowledge, but it is quite, clear, quite clearly negative here. This, they're, not, they're not marveling in a good way in what Jesus is describing. When I did that one thing, you were immediately scandalized. You saw what I did. There was no thought. There was an immediate verdict. Sabbath breaker. Today's the Sabbath, and you just did Sabbath breaker. You were immediately up in arms without giving any thought to what it is you were seeing. And he brings it up because of what that demonstrates about the shallowness of their thinking. It's shallow thinking that that always operates on that immediate surface level way of reasoning. His argument is in verses 22 and 23. This is the second part for the morning, that once we understand what he's saying here, it falls immediately into place. This is a completely relevant argument he's giving here. It's just kind of hard for us to to get at it first. But we'll do it. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision... Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. It preceded Moses. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, that's huge. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He's bringing up both the Sabbath and circumcision. The Sabbath commanded rest on the seventh day, didn't it? We talked about that rest when we were back in chapter 5, a rest from our labors. And yet from the start, as God through Moses gave the law of Moses, from the start, the work of circumcision was always taken as not just a good thing that's so good that it justifies breaking the Sabbath to circumcise, or we can kind of make an exception to the Sabbath, uh, to circumcise. No, not just good like that, but verse 23, actually necessary to keeping the law of Moses, to being in step with the law of Moses. In other words, they recognized circumcision as a work that comports with, that keeps the law of Moses. They've, They've done that from the beginning. It's entirely accurate to speak of the law of Moses as this good reflection of a good thing that God has given to the Jewish people. You think of the testimony of the Psalms. They speak often about the law of God in a broad way, and sometimes even specifically about the things like the Ten Commandments, very clearly speaking about the Mosaic law. Psalm 50 does that, for example. And it repeatedly describes the goodness of what God is revealing in his law. Uh, Furthermore, and we've been hearing about this a little bit in Sunday school recently, the Mosaic Law fundamentally addresses a big problem. What is the big problem that the Mosaic Law addressed in the Old Testament? It addressed the problem, how on earth is a holy God going to dwell amidst a sinful people and they're not all going to die tomorrow? How is that possible? The Mosaic Law addressed that very real and serious problem. So the Mosaic law works for the good of the people under it, and it makes provision for people to draw near to God. This is fundamental to the Mosaic law. Well, guess what the Jews had come to do with disabled people? 
like the paralytic that Jesus healed. They have, we have record of where in the Mishnah that they formally excluded the lame, the blind, they excluded the, the paralyzed, they excluded this class from the requirement to come and present sacrifices at the temple. So they no longer had that, that requirement on them. And it, there, we have a, a good amount of evidence that would seem to suggest that what started to happen for them in practice by this point was that this left the disabled functionally prohibited from drawing near in the temple. It is clear we have, we have um, proof from the Qumran community, that's a particular set of Jews who thought they were holier than the rest of the Jews. We have the record of their writings where they prohibit the, blame, the, the blind and the lame from taking part in their community at all. And in the Old Testament, Leviticus 21 prohibits the lame from serving in the priesthood. They're not allowed. The point of all of this is, what is Jesus doing for that man when he heals him of his paralysis of 30-some years? Not only is he restoring him towards life in a fundamental way, which is utterly in keeping with the intent of the Mosaic Law, He's also removing an obstacle to temple worship from his life. And that's exactly what circumcision has done from the beginning. Genesis 17, 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Leviticus 12, that baby boy must be circumcised on the eighth day. And even if that day falls on the Sabbath, he must do it. If he isn't, there is an immediate distance between him and the people of God. And by necessity then, between him and the temple of God. This is our Lord's point in verse 23. Your understanding of what's acceptable Sabbath work in God's sight has always included circumcising an infant. Have you never thought about the implications of that? If that's valid. What must that mean about the work that God prohibits and the work that he would actually command on the Sabbath? If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Verse 24 is close as we'll get to Jesus saying, Come on, people. Do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. There is a knee-jerk decision-making on display here, a judging with no attempt at considering the actual purpose that God gave his law for in the first place. And by contrast, then, what demonstrates depth, what demonstrates deep thinking, is the willingness to actually care enough, treasure God's word in its totality enough, to go beyond a surface reading of one place, and to ascertain what the actual intent is behind what God has said, which is what happens when we care enough to dig and to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We come to this one and we say, oh, this is what he's saying. But then we go, wait, he says here this. That would conflict with what I've understood here. And we don't just shrug it off. We say, no, I'm going to do the work of a Berean. I'm going to come to understand how it is that this leads me to properly understand this. We are willing to go deep and not to skip along the surface in a casual, knee-jerk kind of way. This is the shallowness that he is exposing to them. And it's quite a convicting 
accusation that he brings. Now, let's add the third and final piece in here, verses 25 to 29. What we find here about deep thinking is that deep thinking is able and willing to distinguish between trivial and important matters. Let's finish hearing what these people of Jerusalem are saying, uh, 25 to 29. See as I read, see if you can pick out the third and final display of shallowness here as they think and reason. 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is, this not, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. They ask a question here at the beginning. And just as quickly as they ask it, they dismiss it with an answer. But it is the process that they go through there and the answer that they arrive at as a result that shows a profoundly shallow way, and I would say it like this, a profoundly shallow way of resolving such a significant question. The question that they ask is based on their leader's strange behavior. They have had over a year of great animosity, a strong sense of the danger in this man. They've been being warned about this. Many of them, the ones speaking here, have actually learned that they're plotting the death of this man. Isn't this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is. He is publicly teaching in the temple. And I can see those leaders, and they're just standing there. They're doing nothing. They're saying nothing. Could it be because they actually know that he's the Christ? That's the question they ask. Now, we know that that's not the reason for their delay, is it? They delay because they know they have no lawful right to arrest him. He is utterly immune of all accusation of sin, which is why they've been having to secretly plot to kill him, and which is why when they finally do it, they will have to bring up trumped-up charges against him. But the point for us this morning is that all of this gets that group of the crowd thinking about the notion of whether this man may in fact be the Christ. They voice that consideration. And what do you think? Is that a fairly important question? We've been waiting our entire existence as a Jewish people for the Christ to come, the one who will fill all the promises that come all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. Could it be that I'm looking at him? That this is the man? And they then proceed to put on display their approach to thinking through important questions. And verse 27 is what we see. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Ah, okay. So how is their logic teacher going to grade their work here? How is their critical reasoning teacher going to grade their work here? For that matter, how is their ethics teacher going to grade their work here? We know where this man comes from. Do you? His entire ministry, uh, to his death, they all assume Jesus to be from Nazareth. 
Matthew 21, 11, as he is riding into Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion, they will say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And when he hangs on the cross, the inscription that goes over his head will read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But they were wrong, weren't they? He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He wasn't from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And J.C. Ryle makes a, a very important point about this. He says this. He says, we can hardly doubt that the Jews might have found this out if they had taken the pains to inquire narrowly into the early history of our Lord's life. In a nation so strict about pedigrees and birthplaces, such a thing could not be hid. But it seems as if they would not take the pains to inquire and satisfied themselves with the common story of his origin as it gave them an additional excuse for not receiving him as the Messiah. There's a second part of their statement here, though, as well, which only adds to the picture, but it's a bit harder to understand. They say, they say we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. That can be confusing because, of course, they do know, or at least they should, where the Christ will come from. He comes from Bethlehem. There's, this is in the Old Testament. It's, it's made clear that this is not obscure knowledge on the part of at least most Jews. There are a couple of possibilities uh, that I think either one would suffice. I, I suspect the second one is what they're actually doing. Uh, it is possible that this is just a group of Jews who are exceptionally poorly taught, and they have not been taught about the prophecy of Malachi 5, that the Messiah will come forth from Bethlehem. I think that's unlikely. They're in Jerusalem. The best leaders and teachers are in Jerusalem. It'd be hard to imagine that they have not heard that. That's possible. I think more likely, though, they, they simply aren't referring to hometown when they talk about no one will know where he comes from. Rather, what they could be pointing to here, and I think this is the case, is that they're pointing to the, the fact of the intimate knowledge that they have of Jesus in his recent past. For example, people know his parents. He's been emerging onto the scene somewhat progressively in their eyes for a while now. Uh, and there are some Old Testament prophecies that led some to think that when the Christ arrives, even if they know he'll come from Bethlehem, when he shows up in his work and, and rescues, this is going to be an all of a sudden uh, blaze of glory and victory. There's a number of places that suggest such an immediacy. Malachi 3.1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There are many others. I find it fascinating because they're the kinds of places that Jesus quotes about his second coming when he is making those predictions. So it seems they're grabbing onto, perhaps here, Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' second coming and saying, well, that's not the way that this has been. He's, he's grown up, but we know who his parents are. There's not been this suddenness. Now, the point that I would have us recognize, though, is, one, as Ryle said, the, the matter of where he comes from is a confusion that they could have tracked down if they cared to. And second, just remember the, the great lack of clarity in their own time uh, in terms of speculation and argument, when it came to the Old Testament's prophecies about the Messiah. There were a lot of different ideas that they had about how the Messiah was going to come. 
Some said, well, he's going to have to suffer in some way. Others said, no, he won't suffer at all. He'll come and there's immediate victory. White robe, there's, there's no suffering. Lots of debate. And for this group, at this consideration of whether or not they're in fact being confronted right then by the Christ, they, <clears throat> they make their decision in an instant. They certainly don't do what? They don't behave like Bereans. And in fact, they take no time at all in this consideration that we see on display of this ultimate question that they're considering. They pick out one line among that theological speculation and are satisfied that it explains why they should reject him. But see, this is what shallow thinking always does. When it senses something, even something potentially significant, but something tough, weighty, but going to require effort, it's satisfied to jump to a simple conclusion and particularly to a simple conclusion that confirms what's most convenient to them. This is what happens. We do this at times. Sometimes we'll do that sort of thing in trivial matters, and it's actually appropriate. We get away with it just fine. We'll, we'll flip a coin to make a certain decision. Um, we will pick our March Madness brackets because we like one mascot better than the other mascot. That's shallow, but it's fine because it's shallow thinking for a shallow subject. And it may be a kind of wisdom. I don't know college basketball. I don't want to take the time to research what I would have to research to make a weightier, deeper decision. But the shallow thinker, horror of horrors, he operates, <clears throat> he operates that way with questions of tremendous significance. I have a friend and this happened years ago, not in this room, not in Amarillo. It was once in a minor car accident, and the only outcome was some slightly bruised ribs from the seatbelt. And the conclusion was, well, I've learned from that. No more seatbelt. Look at what happens uh, when I bother to put on a seatbelt. And you say, no, that's not the conclusion that you're meant to draw from this. There's deeper thinking necessary here uh, and this is kind of a big deal. So shallow thinking here is going to bring some consequences to it. Shallow thinking on weighty matters produces consequences. Let me ask you, what are the consequences? What are the consequences of shallow thinking in reference to the Christ of God who comes as the one and only offered Messiah to rescue sinners from their sin. And I'll tell you, this puts us in just the right place for next week because one of the things Jesus is going to do right after this is to put some of the picture in place of what will happen to those who are satisfied with this treatment of him. But he ends our text this morning with something of a reaffirmation. He again, and this is just so helpful to see him stubbornly refuse in these confrontations to grant them their premise. He does it again here. He refuses to grant them the premise that they are even in a position to be able to discern such things. He answers in verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from. Now, the next page on your Bible, I suspect, John 8, 14, 
He's going to say to the leaders, I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. In verse 28 here, it seems to me, I have no doubt of this, I think, that he's either speaking sarcastically, sure, you know me and where I'm coming from, or it's entirely possible that this is actually a question. The original manuscripts, which we hold to be inerrant, did not contain punctuation marks. So that's an interpretive decision. He could well be saying, you know me and you know where I come from? Oh, is that right? He's certainly not granting to them that they have this knowledge of him. But the point that he proceeds to make is simply what he's already told them many, many times. You do not have the ability to discern for yourselves. You must look to the one who has sent me. He says, him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We've seen it as early as chapter 1 of this gospel, that this is who Christ is. He is the revelation of God from God, and without him, we cannot know God. So as Jesus is speaking with him, he appeals back to the heavenly Father. And as we saw at the beginning, he says, you don't even have to take my word for it in that sense because I am fulfilling what he has always revealed. Take this back to his scriptures and find that I am glorifying him. I am faithfully representing him. As we draw to a close this morning, I would end by simply gathering up and holding out the things that we have seen from his response here. There's the simple point of verse 17, simple in that sort of right to the point kind of way. Those who really want to do God's will will take teaching as it's given to them and will work to form a judgment about it, a right judgment, as to whether it is from God or not. They will live their thought lives, constantly setting up ideas against God's revealed will and words in order to test them. This is the path. This is the life of one who is willing to think deeply. It's what he's holding out to us. And there is so much for us today in that, isn't there? We, we live, every age of human history has been a battle of ideas. But we live amid a battle of ideas, surely on par with any other time in history. I mean, the basic definitions of everything seem to be under attack. What will we do? Will we just lazily accept the premises as they come to us over and over? And then find ourselves confused and on shaky ground as we try to come back to Scripture after the fact? Or will we insist that God is there and that he is not and has not been silent and that his definitions will be the starting point for all of our thinking? It's the only starting place for us if we are to be the people of God. So we've seen that. There was the example of shallowness in handling God's word that they had on full display by their failure to consider the obvious implications of the mandate to circumcise even on the Sabbath. And we hear in that an indictment for us today that says, it is not good enough even to have a rote knowledge of the scriptures if we are not interacting with the scriptures in our minds, meditating on it, feasting on it, engaging scripture with scripture 
in order to better understand and thus to truly live from a properly biblical worldview. And finally, there was the call to treat weighty things with more seriousness than we treat trivial things. And that was a call that makes demands on our usage of time, our choices of priorities. And I hope it's obvious that how in the end, these are not three different points. They coincide with each other. As we set our minds to living for Christ in accordance with the scriptures. We're called here this morning to embrace the reality that our Lord will describe in John 15, 5. He will say this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow before you as your people this morning. We tremble before your word. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, grant to us as a great act of love and protection, grant it to us to be fully convinced in our own minds that we can do nothing apart from you. We most certainly cannot think apart from you. We cannot hope to think accurately, to think in a way that truly reflects the reality that you have made, to think in a way that brings health and life. We cannot hope to do it without you. And so we pray for your help, Father, that you would continue to protect and to grow us in our affections, in our wills, in our thinking. Help us always, Father, to care enough to do the work that allows us to think your thoughts after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.